Our Father, we bow in your presence because you are not only our Lord and Master, but our Savior, our Creator, the one who cares for us above our ability to even care for ourselves. And Father, we are so grateful that you have given to us directions, directions on how to know you, how to live for you, the record of what it is you have done for men and women down through the thousands of years of history, of your faithfulness, of your immutability. And Lord, as we come before you this morning, we don't want to look at the Word of God as if it were just some ordinary book, but to recognize that it is the very expression of God Himself to His people. And Lord, that as we read the words and, and discuss the content, that it will um, mean in our hearts what you intend for it to mean to each of us individually. We don't quite understand the mystery of the word, how from a given passage you can say so many different things to so many different people. And yet we understand that that's part of the greatness of who you are. And so we bow before sovereign majesty this morning. We ask you to be divinely powerful in our presence here and throughout this campus, uh, through the hour ahead in every Sunday school class, in the service which is uh, concurrent with our class. And we ask, Lord, that every life will be touched. We ask if there's anyone here on this property this morning that has not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they will be brought to that faith today and transformed by your power. And Lord, for those that are hurting in some way, that they'll find hope and healing. For those, Lord, that are in a quandary and, and not understanding what to do next, that you will show them the way. And most of all, Lord, even as we study this passage this morning, we pray that you'll help us to understand the absolute rock bottom line faith, and that we will know, Lord, that each day it is by faith not only that we are saved, but by faith which we live. And we'll thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'd like to read beginning verse 9. Deuteronomy before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. We know from Scripture that men and women have been, men and women have been made in the image of God. And therefore, every man and every woman has a spirit and has a spiritual need. This has been discovered to be true for every time, every culture on every continent. Anthropologists and explorers have never found a society that did not have some kind of spiritual orientation. Of all the people through time, those who have not sought the God who, as we read in Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light, have instead sought and followed the God of darkness, the God of this world who is known as the destroyer, as Satan. This passage that we just looked at deals with practices associated with the God of darkness. In verse 11, and we won't recount all the details here because we talked about a few, a little bit of this last week. In uh, verse 11, we discover a reference to diviners, these who attempt through omens, through various enchantments and so forth, to try to discover the future, to predict the future, to discover 
what the gods are thinking through signs of one sort or another. As I mentioned last time, maybe a flight of birds going over or most often hepatoscopy where you actually open up a sacrificial animal and you study its liver and from its liver you find what it is that the gods or the spirits are trying to say to you. We also discovered in, in verse 10 of this passage that uh, those that were part of the worshipers of darkness were those who practice witchcraft and uh, those who do sorceries. Witchcraft and sorcery, sorcery are often put together as a single thing, and in many ways they are, but a true witch is one who practices things like fortune-telling and astrology and, and tries to discover the future through those particular methods. And a sorcerer is not terribly different except that a sorcerer will actually attempt to affect the future by casting a spell, a curse, setting a hex on somebody. And even though we often in our society joke about those things, they're not joking things. There really are such things as curses and hexes in the sense that the demons are active in this world and able to touch lives, especially of those who do not know Jesus Christ. I'd like to read a passage in Isaiah which kind of incorporates these, incorporates these things and helps us to understand, of course I trust we already do, but sort of underscores the futility of these practices. In Isaiah chapter 47, reading at verse 9, Isaiah of course gives a prophecy at a time when Israel has been through some bad times and has followed down uh, the yellow brick road towards oblivion for quite a while. And so often Isaiah is giving a prophecy that is relatively negative as it might be viewed by Israel. And of course he underscores why that is true because of the vile practices of, of his people. But also of course he prophesies concerning many other nations. And uh, in this particular passage one of the nations he's dealing with is the nation of Babylon. And he says in verse 9, But these two things shall come upon you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells." You know, he, he doesn't say there, in spite of the uselessness of your spells, he says of the great power of your spells. And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil will come on you, which you do not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come upon you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. He, of course, is saying this largely with tongue-in-cheek. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Of course, he's highlighting the futility of that. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. 
In our sophisticated society, a lot of this stuff is not very open, but it was very open in the societies of the world about which we are reading. And not only did it, of course, impact Babylon, but all the other pagan powers. These were practiced by all of them. And of course, it impacted Israel and Judah, particularly to the degree to which those nations ceased to follow after God. And of course, Israel, as I mentioned to you before, there never was one time in the history of Israel following the death of Solomon, there never was one time a statement in Scripture saying that the king of Israel did right in the eyes of God. Not one. And of the kings of Judah, there were very few about which God said they did right in the eyes of God. The bulk of them also were evil kings. And so you can understand why all of this vileness would creep into the nation. Because if they've lost contact with God, their spirits are crying out for some help. And so they turn to the other side. They turn to demons. And demons will hear. And demons will answer. And they will think that they are getting a response from the gods. And of course, they're receiving response from the god of dark. And as Isaiah says here, there's none to save you. In the last, in, in verse 11 back in, in Deuteronomy 18, the last three in the list given there in that particular passage in verse 11, talking about mediums, spiritists, and those who call up the dead, these all are dealing with what is known as necromancy, which is consulting with the dead. The Hebrew word in this passage in Deuteronomy 18.11, which is translated medium, refers to a woman with a familiar spirit. And the word in that same verse, the next word along, where it says a spiritist. The word spiritist is translated from the Hebrew and it refers to a wizard, which is the male counterpart of a medium. So be they female or be they male, we're talking about those who attempt to raise up the dead and to communicate with the dead and discover things about the future from the dead. Well, Scripture has quite a bit to say about this because it was a fairly widespread practice. Let me just uh, read a few passages that are on your outline there. 1 Samuel chapter 28. I think you know this story because it is both tragic and, and semi-humorous at the same time. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, you probably remember the story of Saul, the king, who was raised up by God to serve over Israel. And in the latter years of his life, he gave up following God because he became enamored of his own authority as king and followed wicked ways. And now he's faced with the Philistines. And the Philistines seem to be too powerful for him. And so in verse 5 of chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, we read, When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Then Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, why didn't God answer Saul? Because Saul was not pursuing the Lord. He was not trusting the Lord. He was living in his own arrogance. He was living by the, after the flesh. He was doing his own thing. And this, I think, gives us a little bit of idea. Some people think that anytime you pray, God automatically hears. Uh-uh. <laughs> if we're walking in disobedience, the only prayer he wants to hear from us is, God, I repent and I fall on my face before you. And then, you know, if there are other things to deal with, but he's not going to hear our prayer for something we want him to do for us if we're walking in disobedience. And this is the, tr the case uh, concerning Saul here. 
And in verse 7 we read, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Endor is a tiny little town that's up in the north, not too far away from the actual battle site here, which is, all this is occurring up around Mount Gilboa, which is in the north part of Israel, uh, just on the southern edge of what is known as the Plain of Jezreel. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? I mean, Saul is playing the perfect hypocrite here. He has promulgated a law by which spiritists and mediums are not to be in the land and are not to be consulted and are not to function, and now he's actually going to one. And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, (laughs) as the Lord lives, oh yes, saying, as the Lord lives, there shall no punishment come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. (laughs) That should have started a few bells ringing in her head. That'd be a dangerous thing. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. It's a strange passage, Scripture. It tells us how far the mighty can fall. A man whom God had chosen, a man upon whom he had actually placed his spirit, has drifted so far that he is now dabbling in the occult. And he is seeking a medium. And this medium, of course, feels endangered because she knows the proclamation that has gone out and she is suspicious, suspicious it might be a trap. But not so much so that she doesn't go ahead and call up Samuel. But what, what, when we look at this passage, we have to understand that this was not the normal practice of necromancy here. Because in verse 12, it says that when she saw Samuel, she cried, with a li- cried out with a loud voice, and she says, You're Saul! Now, how did all this happen? It happened because normally a necromancer will call up an apparition. They will call up a demonic impersonation of the dead, and they will be hearing the word of a demon because dead people don't come back. Dead people don't rise from the grave and talk to anybody. What you have is demonic impersonations. And she was accustomed to that. She was familiar with that. That's why she had a familiar spirit. And and so she knew when a demon was talking to her. But Samuel scared her to death. Because we're told in this passage, in in verse 13, Saul says, what do you see? And she says, I see a, and the word there is Elohim. I see a mighty one. One who is made in the image of God. Coming up, she's never seen this before. It is Samuel. It is Samuel because God is choosing to give Saul one last 
opportunity to hear from the prophet. And, and so up from the grave, or the spirit of Saul, actually appears to her in this vision. As, I'm sorry, the spirit of Samuel appears to her in this vision. And as you go on and, and read in verse 15 and beyond, you discover the words that are given are not the words of a demon. They're the words of the Lord spoken to Saul. Necromancy is a real practice. The dead are not brought up, but demonic impersonations are brought up. And communication occurs, which is damning to the medium and the one consulting at the same time. Isaiah has further words to say on this issue too. Isaiah chapter 8, reading at verse 16. Isaiah 8, 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Unfortunately, as many of you know, the church has been impacted by this to some degree, that some believe that you can actually pray for the dead and that that makes any difference. There is no biblical support for that whatsoever. The Bible does not teach that. Uh, the Bible teaches the dead are gone, and there's no further communication between the dead and living of any sort or of any kind. And that is one of the reasons why when Jesus gave the little story of the rich man and Lazarus, that uh, the rich man said, let me go back so I can tell my brothers about this place so they don't come here. And uh, Abraham says to him, there's no point in that because if they won't believe the word of God, they won't believe you even if you came back from the dead. Even if you came back from the dead, they won't believe you. If they won't believe the word of God, they are not going to believe anything else. Which, of course, tends to help us to understand that um, signs and wonders which have occurred, miracles which have occurred, have their place. But generally speaking, signs, wonders, and miracles do not result in salvation of people normally. The Word of God brings to true faith. In ver chapter 19 of Isaiah, we read these first four verses. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptian against Egyptians, and they will fight each other against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy, so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts. And of course, into Egypt would come the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, particularly the Assyrians, which would be a cruel master over the Egyptians. And of course, the Assyrians were no better. They practiced all of these wicked things too, but God's people were not too. And that is why the warning is in Isaiah. The warning was given so that as the people of Israel heard the message concerning the Egyptians, concerning the Babylonians, and concerning others, that they would take heed and would flee far away from the prince of darkness. 
and listen, of course, to the God who dwells in unapproachable light. All of these practices which are listed in this passage in Deuteronomy are very real things. These are not figments of the imagination. This is not mind over matter. This is not some kind of a charlatan pulling off a magical trick here. We're talking about things which happen which have no natural explanation. The power, of course, behind these practices is occultic. The power is demonic. If it doesn't come from the Word of God, it is by definition demonic. If a spiritual truth comes from any, I mean a spiritual teaching comes from any place but the Word of God, it is demonic. It is not of God. No matter how anybody protests or tries to say, but it's tradition. Nowhere in the Word of God are we told that tradition is to be our teacher, that tradition is to be our guide that the pronouncements of some meeting of church leaders or some powerful church figure is, is truth in addition to the Word of God. Nowhere does Scripture allow that. In fact, it over and over again basically declares that this is the truth and there is no other truth other than the truth in the Word of God itself. And every pronouncement has got to square with the Word of God, as we'll see as we look a little further here, or, or else it is not at all to be believed. Unfortunately, the church has been profoundly impacted by this. Often today we have cults, groups that break off from the regular church because somebody comes along and he gives a kind of a different twist to something and people become followers of this charismatic individual and his new view and you end up with all kinds of schisms of the church and splinters going off away and people take some portion of Scripture, they distort it and they elevate it to a position above all other Scripture and they in effect worship that concept rather than the God of Scripture and the totality of the truth which He has given to us. It is so vitally important that we study Scripture from Genesis through Revelation so that we can understand the, what's called the whole counsel of God and that we can come to a place where we understand this is true and that is false. And we're never confused. This, of course, is what the scripture itself constantly highlights as you study through it. Thus saith the Lord. I trust that you, as, as I, that that's what we want. We want to hear what the Lord has to say, not what some person has distorted and convoluted and twisted to try to say that it says. And, and the, the, the history of the church is just scattered with the corpses of these, of these dead individuals and groups that have come along. It's like um, one of my, well, my son-in-law last night was asking about the Albigenses. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Albigenses, but Back in the 13th century, there developed in southern France a group of individuals who basically, as you know, of course, France at that time, as all of Europe, was overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. But this group of individuals decided that the old Gnostic view of things was really a more correct view of things. This whole idea that the flesh is irrelevant, it doesn't matter, what you do in the flesh has nothing to do with anything, it's what your spirit, your mind is focused on, and so you can do whatever you want in the flesh as long as your spirit's oriented in the right direction. And they developed a, a group known as the Bogomils, which means the lovers of God. They were also known as the Cathari, which means the pure. 
And they were, is this what the problem is with Gnosticism? Gnosticism is very arrogant and, and bigoted. Gnostics come to the place where they feel like because of their intellectual understanding of the secret truths, of the knowledge that is hidden to everyone else, that they are a superior, an elite group, and all the rest of us are a bunch of peons who don't understand anything. And Gnosticism manifests itself today primarily in a group called the Christian Science Movement. The Christian Science Movement is very Gnostic, and, and it's, it's based on these secret hidden teachings of somebody like Mary Baker Eddy, and it has nothing to do with truth. I, I sat through a, by accident, <laughs> when I was younger, sat through a service in a Christian Science Church because we were looking for a church and ended up in the wrong one. And I mean, if I ever heard a lot of nothing, I never heard more nothing in my whole life. That person talked and that person said nothing the entire time that was worth listening to or paying any attention to. Just a lot of slogans and sayings, you know. There was no power, no sense of God's presence at all. And that's the way Gnosticism is. And often, this is exactly what, I mean, this is an idea that I've often thought of. If, if Satan can't keep you from the truth, he will try to distort the truth in you. This is what he'll try to do. And so you and I have to always be careful that we not only know the truth, but we know the truth biblically and live according to it and don't allow it to be distorted because of somebody who comes along and says, hey, I have a special line with God and I know the real understanding of this passage of Scripture. This is what happens when the Jews themselves leave the faith in sense of trusting in the literal word of God and get taken into this mystic line of thought. Yeah. And it's really scary because out of the Jewish Kabbalah comes all kinds of sorceries and witchcraft and other things too in the Middle Ages. It's really tragic. How God feels about this is made uh, quite clear in Scripture because God uses, if you remember in the passage we were reading in Deuteronomy 18, God uses the word detestable several times. The word detestable can be rendered as abominable. And sometimes to us, abominable comes across as a little bit more... Uh, serious than detestable. We think if something is detestable as not being nice, abominable be as absolutely awful, you know, something out of the pit. And that's literally, of course, what it means. But you'll notice the contrast, and it's so beautiful here in this um, passage. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 12, it says, For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these detestable things. The Lord your God will drive them out before you. And then in verse 13, he says, what Israel is to do. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. The word blameless means complete, whole. It means you shall have a rounded understanding of who the Lord your God is. You will not have a distorted view. You will not have a view where you have one foot in the kingdom of heaven, you think, and the other foot over in the world. You won't have a view whereby you, you think you know God and you know the Word of God, but you're over here dabbling in the things of the occult. This is one of the tragedies of the country of Brazil today. And, and that is, Brazil claims to be 85% Roman Catholic, and yet a spiritism uh, is shot through the whole country. And half of all Brazilians practice spiritism. Well, that, what you've got are people who go to spiritist things on Friday night or, or Saturday night and then go to Mass on Sunday morning. It's kind of like, we're going to hedge our bets here. And, and we're going to make sure we're going to get it right here. We'll do a little of each. Well, I see that's what Israel tried to do. And God said that is absolutely abominable. 
<laughs> it's like I, I mentioned this before. It's, you, you remember the song in Oklahoma where she sings, with, it, with me it's all or nothing. Is it all or nothing with you? And even though she's talking about a relationship there between a man and a woman, that's what God wants. It's all or nothing with him. It can't be partly in the kingdom of God. We're either totally committed to him or we're not committed to him at all. There's no middle ground, no halfway house. Not like the old Puritans who had a halfway covenant. For those who couldn't quite make it and couldn't quite live the real walk, they gave them a kind of a halfway place where they could still be considered Christians, but uh, obviously it was too hard for these young people to live the godly life. So we'll allow them to have a halfway covenant. No. Israel was to walk in complete integrity before the Lord their God. Because if they did that, they didn't need the occult. They didn't need to go to a sorcerer or a witch or a medium or a spiritist. They didn't need that because God would raise up the prophets to show them the way. And did he do it? Well, I mean, we have the records of many of the prophets. I mean, we know, of course, about Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. And, of course, we have the written words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the 12 minor prophets. Did God give Israel prophets? He gave them many, many prophets. And we don't even know the names of all the prophets that God raised up for his people. They didn't need to go to a necromancer to have some dead apparition come up to tell them about the future if they would listen to the prophet that God sent them. God never left them without his word available to them. And in verse 15 of this passage, we have a very, very important statement. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This predicted the line of godly prophets, of course. This predicts an Elisha, an Elijah, and a Jeremiah, and, a, and so forth. But it has a deeper and more fulfilling meaning because it is also a messianic statement. We read from Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter is speaking and he says, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How do we get times of refreshing? Our sins must be wiped away. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. Peter understood Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 18 to be messianic. And Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. There would be many others who would be prophets who would bring the word of the Lord, but the ultimate fulfillment would be Jesus Christ, who was like Moses in the sense that he was the great leader of Israel, but of course was far greater than Moses in that he was the God of Moses, the one who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. So in that effect, you see, Moses was the spokesman of the great prophet, Moses simply gave the words of Jesus Christ and then in the flesh he came himself and lived and spoke the truth as the prophet predicted by Moses. The Israelites were given clear guidance as to how they could know if a prophet was a true prophet. 
They didn't have to just listen to every single prophet that claimed to be a prophet. We read last week about the 400 prophets who tried to convince Ahab, yes, go ahead up and, and, and go ahead and capture the city because God will be with you. And Jehoshaphat, the king of, of Judah, who was there in alliance with him, which was a very bad thing for Jehoshaphat to do. Scripture teaches us not to be un, unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and yet Jehoshaphat, the godly king, had created an alliance with an ungodly king, and it nearly cost him his life. But uh, Jehoshaphat says, isn't there really another prophet around here <laughs> besides all these psychophants, you know, these yes-men? So, he, well, there's one more, but he never says anything good about me. You remember that passage? And, and he called Micaiah, and Micaiah says, oh, sure, go ahead and attack the city. <laughs> and even evil old Ahab could see that Micaiah was, call, was pulling his leg. He says, can't you tell me the truth? <laughs> How many times do I must I tell you to tell me the truth? It, that is such a humorous statement. Anyway... Micaiah says, yeah, okay, go ahead up to city and this country is going to be without a leader. This country is going to be a bunch of sheep without shepherds because you're going to die. And Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, see, I told you you never prophesied anything good about me. <laughs> this is how you know a true prophet. Does he prophesy the word of the Lord according to the words of Moses? Does the prophecy, does it fit with the word of Moses as given in the Pentateuch? If it fits, if it is not in any way antagonistic or in violation of the word of Moses, then it's the word of the Lord. And we need to apply that test today. Are these people we're hearing on the television and radio speaking the truth? Well, does it dovetail with the word of God, the whole counsel of God? Does it fit? Or is there a place where it comes head-to-head -head with the Word of God, where it's contrary to the Word of God? That, by definition, makes it not the Word of God, not the Word of the Lord. This person is not a prophet of God. This is not one preaching the truth. And if we listen carefully, sometimes you don't know. My wife and I, one time years ago, sat in, in a church that was having all this revival, and it was a charismatic church and all this stuff, and then they had this famous nation nationally known television person who came to speak there and we sat through 90 minutes of that at the end of it we felt like here's person who all this person do it is cheerleading not teaching one single truth just cheerleading and I thought the very best you could say for it was a very very shallow kind of faith and the worst is of course that it causes people to miss the real truth the deep truth the truth that grounds them in God it gives them strength to face the difficulties of life. And we have to be so aware of the Word of God that we know when somebody is trying to pull the wool over our eyes because they're out there to get your money. And of course, every once in a while you hear about it, right? It was so tragic looking the other day. Um, you've seen this too if you ever watch CNN. One, one of these preachers who fell and is trying to get back says, you're not looking at the old here, you're looking at the new. Oh, right. He should have been the new man to start with. What was he doing proclaiming the Word of God if he wasn't the new man in Jesus Christ? How come he's now the new man after he's gone through awful, awful tragedy brought on by himself in his own wickedness? That's why Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? Only God. We also discover at the end of this passage in Deuteronomy 18, the last three verses here, 
verse 20, but the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. God cuts to the chase. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. God gives them clear direction. There is no reason for them to stand around a quandary not knowing what to do. What is truth and what is not truth? Because God says, if it comes from a true prophet, it will come true. If it comes from a prophet and there are signs and wonders which come true, but the word he's prophesying does not square with Scripture, he's a false prophet. So there are two tests. One is, does the prophecy come true? And the other is, does the prophecy square with Scripture? It's got to square with Scripture and come true. If that is not so, then this is false prophet and you don't listen to him. Not only don't you listen to him, you terminate his existence. God did not pussyfoot around with those who dared to lead people astray. In our day, God is biding his time, it seems, and people who proclaim falsehood don't seem to be struck dead right away or anything like that. But I really fear for them as they face God one day. And I mean, it's one thing to stand before God and to say, I never heard, I never knew. It's another to stand before God knowing that you have proclaimed a lie in his name profane the very holy person of God himself. That's absolutely intolerable, and God will not tolerate it. They'll be cast to the lowest portion of hell, whatever all that might mean. Chapters 19 through 26 of Deuteronomy deal with matters, civic, civic, civil laws, uh, ethical matters, moral matters. And some of these are laws which have been proclaimed already and, and are listed for us in Exodus or Leviticus. Some are new. But next week, I, I want to pick up with Deuteronomy chapter 20 and look at a very unusual set of laws that God gave, which helps us to understand that God really recognized all that Israel would go through, and he had directions for them in every area of their lives, even in the midst of how to conduct war, if you will. And so we'll look at... Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20 and his instructions in that chapter concerning how they should even carry out war. I mean physical war, which of course, in the case of Israel, also involved spiritual warfare. And we'll see how that ties together with us next week.